The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. This is Max George. And this is Nathaniel Darkish. And we have a very special guest with us today, author Grady Hendricks. It's good to be a king. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And Grady, I'm super nervous. Your book that I just read was amazing. Oh. So fangirling a little bit. Oh, no, no, no. I, I enjoy that. It gives me an enormous ego. Which book? <laughs> My best friend's ex. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. I... I Abby and Gretchen, I love those gals. They're out there somewhere in the world still making friends, which is really nice. As a massive 80s fan, I was born in 1990, so I barely missed it. But good God, that book was spectacular. (laughs) Thank you. So I guess, could you introduce yourself a little bit, Grady, our our audience who doesn't know? Yeah, I mean, I'm Grady. I write things. Um, I was a journalist (laughs) for about 10 years, and these days I write mostly uh, books and movies. I wrote Horror Store about a haunted Ikea and My Best Friend's Exorcism that takes place during the Satanic Panic about two best friends in 10th grade who become convinced that one of them's possessed by Satan. Uh, And my last novel was We Sold Our Souls about a, it's a heavy metal horror novel. Um, and then, uh, my new book was, is coming out in March of next year, uh, which I don't want to reveal too much about. And, um, I've got a book and a movie in post-production right now called Satanic Panic. And I wrote a movie called Mohawk and a couple of other bits and pieces here and there. Oh, and I wrote Paperbacks from Hell, which is a nonfiction book from, I guess, 2017, 2016, 2017, which is a history of the horror paperback boom of the 80s and 90s. And that won a Stoker Award. Yes, yes, it did. Um, And I I do a live version of that where I sing and do an oral version of the book. Um, And I'm actually working right now on a live version of a sequel to Paperbacks from Hell. Not a book, but a a live show that'll be a sequel. Uh, Paperbacks from Hell to Think of the Children which will be about uh, teen fiction between 1967 and 1997. Well, that sounds awesome. I was just sitting here before I got on with you guys reading uh, Wilderness Terror books published in the, the 60s and the 80s. Yeah, Innocent teens, they thought they'd have a simple summer, and then they wind up trapped, surviving by their wits and eating squirrels in the woods while <laughs> evil people, usually bank robbers, stalk them. But the good news is they often lose weight in the process. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the one I just finished, which uh, it starts with this girl with her mom telling her she's a little chunky. And then the single engine plane she's taking to Alaska to visit her divorced dad crashes. And she has to hike out over hundreds of miles of wilderness. And it turns into this really philosophical, existential girl against nature thing. And she comes into her own. And you're like, wow, this book was actually really good. And like, and then she gets home and she's like, oh my God, I lost like 20 pounds. Now I can fit into my Calvin Klein jeans. The end. Move over, keto diet. Exactly. Just get in a plane that crashes. Although, in, well, I guess in Alive, they lost weight too. That was like a paleo diet, super high on the protein. 
All right, Grady. Well, if you don't mind, we'd love to just kind of dive in. Yeah, go for it. All right, so you, you've mentioned, obviously, a lot of contributions to the horror genre. Can you tell us maybe some of your favorite horror books and movies? What were a few that you found the most frightening? Some of your favorites? Stuff like that? Well, horror doesn't really scare me. You know, it's it's. I like the genre. Like, I... I, I don't I don't know it doesn't scare me but I although I will say um, when I was in high school I loved Evil Dead 2 and I saw it before I saw one and I remember we went to the video store and rented one and like all of us were just shitting our pants for because one is like a legit scary movie but I found that like and actually I guess the other movie that really flipped me out at that age was a uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I think one reason Evil Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre scared me so much is they were so dirty like I mean not not metaphorically but literally dirty like they were really grimy and you didn't know any of the actors and there was no polish to them and it really you know, you get this video cassette from like the store and it would come in this like clear box because, you know, you wouldn't get the picture box when you rented it. And um, it was like almost like an unmarked tape and you just felt like you were watching a snuff film or something. It's, it's, very, it's very hard for me to buy that people get scared over a movie that comes with a marketing campaign and a teaser trailer and a trailer and the stars are doing like you know press tours it's like Blair Witch I think one reason Blair Witch took so many people by surprise is horror in the 90s was so polished and so slick and so looked like you know before the CW it looked like the CW and then here came this movie with nobody you'd heard of in it it was gross and dirty and and the ad campaign was kind of weird and mysterious and and so it really worked um in terms of books uh a lot of what I read is older stuff you know and so this you know Michael McDowell I love I mean Shirley Jackson which about Joan Sampson's The Auctioneer is phenomenal if people haven't read it. Um, in terms of disturbing or upsetting, I think the only book that's really done that for me is Let's Go Play at the Adams, which is a um, book from the 70s about this um, this girl is babysitting these kids, and it's like one of those like balmy summers, and the neighbors are always overplaying, and the parents have gone to Europe for two weeks. So she's babysitting the kids for like two weeks. And... Um, she wakes up from a nap and the kids have tied her to the bed and like they don't mean anything malicious they just want to see if they can get away with it but like the more they get away with the more they try to get away with and it really gets disturbing and actually it's a beautiful book by the time you get to the i mean the end is just this harrowing gorgeous philosophical kind of transcendent moment and chunk of writing but it's like i never want to read it again it's really it's really dark well i'll have to check that out that sounds like my kind of book yeah well i probably oversold it but yeah see what you think cool um so you mentioned that horror doesn't really scare you but how did you kind of get into this line of work <laughs> you know well i guess i i liked horror growing up um I didn't really read much of it because the covers were kind of too gross for me. Like I mostly read like science fiction and a lot of like men's adventure, military kind of stuff when I was a kid. Uh, but I read Stephen King and Clive Barker because it was just interesting. Like more interesting stuff happened. You know, it was like you weren't sort of limited by by the everyday. And I guess I just kind of kept reading it 
I, I don't know. It just sort of was there. And the movies were always a lot of fun. And you found like they were just odder and stranger and weirder and more diverse. And uh, but but I guess I got into this line of work because I didn't really think I wrote horror, but you know the marketing department has to put something on the the side of the book. So I'd written a cookbook and some YA and some other stuff, and um, I had a chance to pitch this horror book for Quirk, and I, I did, and so that's sort of where I wound up. It's it's weird. It's it, it kind of happened accidentally on purpose. I really harken back to what you were saying about when a movie doesn't advertise actively about it's a horror movie. You know, you say the nineties were really polished and I would agree with that. And I think that's kind of a fun thing actually with your books that I've noticed so far. Uh, you know, my best friend's exorcism looks like a VHS cover. Uh, and so it kind of goes these, these both different ways, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, a lot of that's uh, quirk. I mean, they do really great cover work. Andy Reed, the art director and, and Doogie Horner. I mean, they do amazing stuff. That best friend's exorcism cover shouldn't, look that good. I mean, they didn't have enough time to do that cover, but Doogie really had a vision for it. And really, he found this uh, artist, Hugh Fleming, and um, and uh, really, like, this moved way faster than it should have or would have anywhere else. I mean, the artist was literally, I will give you a sketch and go to a full painting. And usually you have time to make edits and comments. And this was really like, hold your breath, close your eyes, cross your fingers and pray. Um, and so, but you know it really turned out so i mean that's that's not me so much that's that's them um although i love it and i encourage it and embrace it i mean uh and the horror store thing that was an issue where andy and i were just egging each other on you know they would say oh we want to look like an ikea catalog and then i'd say well you know what if we had like a different piece of furniture you know they or my editor would say let's have a different piece of furniture at the beginning of every chapter and then i'd be like well what if the furniture got weirder and darker and then if you got the furniture you have to have catalog copy and then if we got that why don't we have an order form like it just kept developing and that's the nice thing about a smaller publisher is you can be more involved in that process and really grow something organic than another sort of unit on the production line so to kind of broaden it a little bit for me one of my bigger questions I wanted to ask you is what does the horror genre kind of mean to you? Why do you think people are drawn to it? What good does it do to society? Kind of the more esoteric. Yeah, I don't know if it has to do any, I don't know if anything has to do any good, right? Like what good does ballet do? Like what good does, um, you know, Westerns do? Like, I, I'm not sure it has to justify its existence. You know, it, it exists. Um, but the reason I like it, and I can't speak for other people, is, I mean, A, I like that it's not bound by the everyday, and things can really, more unexpected possibilities can arise. But also, um, I've really come to appreciate the fact that horror is the only genre that really sits with death and really embraces death. And, you know, the only thing that gives our lives meaning is the fact that we die. And so th this is the one genre that really is comfortable with that and, and spends time with that. And so that's something I really enjoy about it. Something I've noticed with a lot of your books is that there's a lot of humor as well as the horror. How do you think those two things interplay with each other? Well, for me, it's not very conscious. Like, I actually don't think any of my stuff is that funny. And then people are like, oh my God, that was so funny. I'm like, really? Huh? Like, to me, it's all really, really super serious when I'm writing it. Because the real, the thing I really try to do is like apply the reality principle to everything. Like if this really happened, what would, what would be going on right here? And often 
it gets ridiculous fast. I mean, you know, um, ghosts are really, you know, they're kind of goofy when you really sit down and think about them. Um, and so that's sort of where I'm coming from. But I know in horror, you know, humor is a big part and a big part of the tradition. And, and there's sort of two parts of that. One is that, I mean, just traditionally, you know, horror and humor both are supposed to be about violating taboos, right? Um, that's what gets the reaction, something that's shocking or something that's, um, and it can be either horrific or hilarious. And also, you know, even physiologically, like being scared and being, uh, and, and breaking into laughter, it's a lot of the same process, right? Like it's a setup and a payoff on the page. You set it up, you pay it off, you use misdirection so that it's more unexpected because the more unexpected the payoff is, either the more horrific and scary or the funnier it is. And, you know, screaming and laughing, they're both supposed to be uncontrollable reflex actions. Uh, I guess crying is too, and probably orgasms. So, you know, that's, that's the, the, you know, the four segments, right? Make, make them laugh, make them scream, make them cry, make them come, I guess. Going in a little bit of a different direction, how do your personal fears influence your writing? I'm scared of the same things everyone's scared of. I'm scared of the dark. I don't, you know, underwater monsters, like that kind of stuff. But I mean, what really, really, truly scares me is being poor. And, and I've been broke and it's bad and scary and it really crushes you. And so I think think someone was pointing out that like so many characters in my book are like just scraping by and in, in the different books and so I think and money's always a concern and, and I kind of feel like that's how it is in real life so I think that's how probably that interplay happens um, what terrifies me is being poor and being dirty so there you go so we wanted to dig into my best friend's exorcism yeah let's dig so I noticed that from a lot of your bios online that you're from Charleston yes oh so that that's where the book's set. So how much of your own high school experience? Oh, that's my high school. I mean, 100%. Oh, you had a terrible high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, though. I think, you know, it's interesting. Like, whenever I see my in-laws, I'm like, they'll ask how my family is, and I'll tell them stories, and they're like, no, no, what, what? Um, and then they'll tell me, they'll, they'll be like, oh, you know, your family's so nuts. It's so crazy. And our family isn't like that at all. But then over the course of like the three or four days I'll spend with them, the same stories will come out about their family. They're just told very differently. And so I really think it's sort of what you're seeing. You know, like my high school had a slave day when I went there, you know. It, it wasn't racial. I mean, we didn't have any black kids who went to my school. We were a traditional, you know, upper middle class, white flight, suburban school. And so, so it wasn't racial. But it was, you know, but obviously there's that uncomfortable con connotation, right? But it was deeply sexist. I mean, the thing that would happen is, you know, the boys would buy the, like, popular girls and, like, make them walk around with their, like, a balloon taped to their nose or, like, their bra worn on the outside of their blouse or something. And, like, it was all just in good fun, but, but is it really? Like, you know, so, but, but, you know, I've talked to people since then, like, I mean, people have shown me pictures of them in blackface in their yearbooks from like Pennsylvania and Ohio. Like I've um, talked to people whose schools gave prizes for like prettiest eyes, best figure, like, you know, just the craziest stuff, sexiest legs. I'm like, who the fuck is a sicko who gives an 18 year old a sexiest legs award in public? That's just disturbing and depraved. So I feel like, you know, it all depends on how you look at it. You know, like, um, I, 
I loved and hated my high school in equal measures. And so that I think really comes out in that book. But I don't think it was particularly worse than anywhere else. But maybe I'm just kidding myself. No blackface. There was never blackface. Yeah, at least there's that. (laughs) We can cling to that. Max, did you want to ask about the possession and exorcism stuff? Oh, yeah, I could spend an entire episode on this. So get ready, Grady. I'm ready. Um, So I'm kind of an amateur demonologist. Okay. This is my jam. Um, I'm really fascinated by the story around the demon in particular, Andres. Spoiler alert for anyone listening. When you were writing My Best Friend's Exorcism, did you craft the story around this demon specifically? Or did you just kind of stumble upon him and it kind of fit the plot? Well, you know, the hard thing is, you know, in a book, you have to figure out what the bad guy wants. And so it's like, well, what does a demon want, right? Because it's pretty murky in most exorcism stories. You know, like, like, why on earth does like Pazuzu or so? Why do they possess a kid? Like, dude, I, I'd go full on. There's a great Graham Masterson book he wrote under the pseudonym Thomas Luke, where like a demon possesses the president of the United States and tries to launch a nuclear war, and they have to sneak the Pope into the Oval Office to perform an exorcism as the nuclear clock is ticking. I mean, it's really high stakes. But you're like, you know. It's a it's an eleven year old girl who gives it. You can't even drive. You know, someone has to give you a ride places. And ultimately, in a possession narrative, the demoniac, the possessed person, really doesn't matter, right? Like the whole point of them being possessed is to test the faith of the exorcist. And so the books often um, and the narratives often get reduced to sort of like. Uh, a young girl tied to a bed while an old men shouted her. Um, and, and the demoniac is just sort of this empty vessel. They're like a phone line between, you know, the demon and the, the exorcist. And it's so, it so erases their identity. And so I really wanted to make sure that, that, that this was a book where like the, the, the possessed person was a person. They mattered. And, and whether, you know, it doesn't matter in The Exorcist if Regan's a good kid or a bad kid. If she strangles kittens or rescues kittens, it doesn't matter. She doesn't matter. She is simply there is a battlefield for uh, Pazuzu and The Exorcist. And so I really wanted to make her matter. So then it had to be like, well, what does the demon want? Like, if they don't just want to test the exorcist, even though they do in this book, what do they want? And so I spent a lot of time, you know, going through things like the 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 lesser key of Solomon and stuff like that, looking for a demon. I would just wanted to, I like research. I just want to find one that worked. And when I came across Andrus, first off, badass look, like oh, naked totally. chick with the head of an owl riding a wolf, that kind of rocks in a sword. But also the fact that it's a demon who's concerned with disrupting harmony, with breaking friendships and ties, with destroying families and 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 amity. Like, and I was like, well, what better demon that would sort of stand in for adolescence if you squint hard and look at it sideways, right? Like, nothing fucks up a family more than a teenager. Um, and so it was, and, and you know, you have those friendships. Tested, so it just fit in so perfectly. And and it's nice when you find something that's like, it's like you finally get that piece of food out between your teeth, like it's been stuck there for like an hour. And it's just such this feeling of like, everything is right. Everything just clicks into place when you find the right piece of a book. And it fits so perfectly. You know, I I studied the Lesser Key of Solomon. I know the demons. And so when I figured out it was Andres, 
I it was like this makes perfect sense. All the discord, all of kind of the demonic attacks, yeah, it all fits together, and it was really illuminating for me as a reader, which just blew my mind. Yeah, there's this thing with writing where like often the book is smarter than you are, and the stuff that fits is supposed to be there. It, it sounds stupid, but like often I'll get to the end of a book and be like, shit, I don't. The last like you know third, I am lost. And then I'll often realize the thing that bails me out is something that I already wrote earlier. Something that I wrote just sort of randomly that never pays off. Some bit of the setup that's never developed properly or I underutilize it. All because back. So the so so Andres really just fit and it just was the right piece that made everything shine. And I think it was really smart to use him as well because the discord and kind of the contention, especially after Gretchen becomes fully possessed, you start to wonder if she really even is possessed or if she's just being that bitchy woman that we all knew in high school. Right. Uh, well, and that I thought was really clever. Yeah. And, you know, it is something also, you know, it's funny. Um, I mean, I don't know how technically true it is, but I mean, they're etymologically speaking, um, you know, demon is, is from the Greek word demos, uh, which means right. teacher. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so there is an element of the demon that's teaching, right? That's applying pressure and stress to encourage you to grow and change and learn. Um, and it's kind of what teenagers do, right? In a weird, unconscious way, they apply all this stress to everything around them to see what holds and what breaks, what you can trust and what you can't. And so it just was a neat little bit that worked. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. And I want to dive in a little bit more specifically to some of the demonic attacks, primarily the tapeworm scene with Margaret. For me, that yeah. was one of the most horrifying moments of the book. Do you want to give us some insight in how you kind of thought of those? Yeah, well, you know, there's always been... Um, a really heavy diet aid industry. And I've always been fascinated that you can walk into like a super, like a drugstore, like a Dwayne Reed or something. I mean, I'm not sure now, but I know as, as late as the early 2000s, late 90s, and there would be an aisle for diet aids and it would mostly be, you know, speed. Um, and, you know, and it's this, and, and I, I, I mean, have three older sisters who did all kinds of experimental diets in high school and stuff. And, and there's the urban legend of, of ingesting tapeworm eggs as a waste, weight loss technique. And I just thought the idea of just a bunch of worms churning around in your stomach is just appalling. And so, you know, and, and legendarily, there's the joke that, you know, how do you get rid of a tapeworm? You, you wave a piece of raw meat and it comes out. And it's just to literalize that and apply the reality principle, it's just disgusting. Oh, it was horrible to read that, but amazing at the Thank same you. time. <laughs> to kind of wrap up with My Best Friend's Exorcism, I was really moved by the ending of the book. Oh, thanks. Someone who was very religious is not anymore. I relished in the idea that the actual exorcism had no priesthood tied to it there was no religious affiliation you know the priest eventually fails can you give us some insight in yeah that? was that intentional well yeah absolutely i mean you know i don't think people are as religious as they were even 30 years ago so i thought like having some kind of jesus thing and some kind of very specifically denominational um 
aspect to the 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 exorcism just would leave people cold and i was sort of trying to figure out what you have faith in besides like you know god and i realized it's really when you're in high school it's your friends like they're the ones who bail you out they're the ones who come through in a pinch they're the ones you turn to when all is dark you know they're everything and so that ending really came to me and i was like okay and then sort of jumping through in the years to show their friendship sort of existing you know i've always been fascinated at the end of the exorcist in the movie particularly they, there's like there's all this stuff you know linda blair's rubbing rubbing her mom's face and her bloody crotch and all this stuff and then they're like waving goodbye goodbye thanks for the exorcism come on honey let's have bread i'm like i want to see that bread like jesus what are you gonna do here like everything's just normal again and so i really wanted to take things past that end point and show how they played out and I also realized as I was writing it that it's a way to have the exorcist also still be a hero. Like, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I, I grew up going to church and Sunday school and all. And so I didn't want to belittle his faith. And I like this idea that for Brother Lemon, there is a God. It's just quieter. And it's, it's, it's who had Gretchen meet Abby. It's how that, 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 that whatever force of good for Brother Lemon, it's God, had everything in the right place so far in advance. It was, it was a quieter, less dramatic, less flashy kind of intervention that everything that needed to be there that's to save her was there. And one of those things was Brother Lemon turning himself in and taking the rap for the exorcism. So neither of those girls was punished. And in a weird way, he is kind of the hero of the book. He is the one who takes the bullet so that they aren't punished for saving each other. And so, and I like that everything sort of came together that way and everyone sort of got the ending I thought they they deserved, except for poor good dog Max. Okay, so kind of moving out to your writing more in general, mm -hmm. um, I've noticed that one of the things that makes the horror very effective in all of your books is how fleshed out the characters are. So when you're writing, how much do the characters shape the plot versus the plot shaping the characters? Oh, that's the biggest battle, right? Like you have an ideas for all these cool set pieces and scenes and things, but really people just want to see characters, you know, like no one goes, oh my God, Star Wars. Could you believe it that they blew up the Death Star? It had a weakness in it. Everyone's sitting there going, oh my God, Han Solo, he's so sexy. Oh, Darth Vader, he's so like evil, but like I kind of like him. Like everyone's here for the characters and how they interact. And um, that's all that really matters. And so the more real they be and can be and the more they get the bullshit of all the plot mechanics gone that are stuck in my head, like... You know, because you, you imagine, you know, oh, if this is going to happen, this has to be, blah, 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 blah. and you just paint yourself into these mechanical corners where everything's just horrible, horrible, creaking clockwork. And so the characters are really, I mean, it's something I'm really, I'm, I'm on my, writing my next book right now, and, and I'm sort of at the end of it. And I'm at the point where I'm like, Jesus Christ, these characters just aren't alive. And, and I'm having to throw out at the last minute huge chunks. It's very depressing. I wish I was a more efficient writer. Well, as a writer, I, I feel your pain. <laughs> so I, I also wanted to dig into uh, We Sold Our Souls. Yeah. So I had the really surreal experience of reading your book while doing the same job as the protagonist. Oh, so you I, were a night auditor? Yes. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Works as a night auditor, and I'm actually a security guard at the same hotel. So 
it's a fun oh no combination. way <laughs> how long have you guys been doing those jobs i've been doing it about three years oh wow same place and, yeah that's kind of amazing because at this point you kind of know the job so it's like i don't know that must be a really really kind of freaky thing yeah it definitely made the experience of reading it very surreal there was actually a lot more of her doing her job that got cut out just for for pacing considerations but there was a whole thing about like you know the hotel just doesn't feel right to her ever and like it has this like legend that goes around it about a, a guest who checked in and just wasn't in their room the next day and there's no security footage of them leaving and it was just a much sort of like it was much more entrenched in this there was like co-workers and it was much more entrenched in sort of the life of the hotel at night but that all went out the window for pacing well, I would love to read that just from the having done the job perspective. Well, you know, um, there's, there's a weird thing about that because do you, at your job, are you actually the person who leaves the bills? Because I know some places the night auditor prints them, but someone else will leave them or they share the duties. But do you actually leave them under the door? No. Okay. Who does that? It all happens digitally now, so... Oh, right, right. Well, because to me, that's so fucking scary. To be going down a hallway full of doors in the middle of the night, just sliding a piece of paper under each one, not knowing if it's going to, like, open or not. Or, like, you start sliding, someone grabs the paper on the other side. That would just freak me out to no end. Well, we have to get trays in the middle of the night. Oh, that's weird, yeah. Yeah. Just a long uh, hall with a tray yeah, down halfway. as the security guard. Oh, the security guard has to get the trays? Oh, geez. But, you know, I think one of the things about hotels that's so interesting to me, and you guys would know this more, is like, it doesn't, like, a lot of hotels I've been in, it doesn't go to night lighting, all of them. Like, it's just, like, there's something very weird about them. They're almost like showrooms. Everything stays the same in terms of, like, environment 24 hours a day. It's so weird. It's very true. And it results in coworkers being very paranoid about ghosts and all sorts of weird stuff. Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. So I guess moving away from the ho uh, hotel angle, so We Sold Our Souls is a very metal book. <laughs> so what real-life music inspired you to write the novel? Well, you know, I wasn't a metal guy, like, at all. Like, metal's the genre I always avoided. But I knew the book had to be about metal because it's the one genre that, like, you say you like metal and everyone's sort of like, oh, that means you're an idiot who lives in your mom's basement. Like it's automatically a genre that invites judgment and even like hip-hop like that has that's at least cool like country it's enjoyed by vast swaths of of the united states like metal is just relentlessly uncool and the harder it tries to be cool the more it seems uncool and so when the book got sort of greenlit by my publisher i had to like really find my way into metal it just wasn't my genre and so i had a lot of people i knew people in bands i'd grown up with and stuff and they were really great and i know some metal guys and they were really great and and uh, a friend of mine she wrote me out a playlist and but it took me a really long time to find the song in the album that was like oh i like this and then that takes you to the next one and stupidly enough I, it took me forever to realize that the my way in was the first track from Black Sabbath's first album. And then from there it went on to like, you know, 
the 70s guys and then then the sort of hair metal glam bubblegum kind of stuff in the 80s and from there i went to like the speed metal metallica and slayer and and after that it was sort of like i started learning what i actually liked and didn't like don't like death metal do like prog metal like much to my shame so it was it was all a learning process for me i mean i'm not musical but like i took like a little over four months of guitar lessons just to like what does that feel like to have a guitar and play a guitar and how does that feel on your body and stuff so it really it was a lot of one of the things i like about writing books is a lot of fun to sort of go into these worlds that like aren't normally yours um and, and learn about them and and really have to emotionally invest in them i mean there's a couple of albums that i just can't listen to anymore because i listened to them so much while writing we sold our souls which was not a happy process for me then like now that i'm done it's just they're they're too emotional like i i get really it sounds so so sissy but like i just get way too overwhelmed when i listen to, to those cuts again right so there's definitely like a metalhead subgenre of horror why metal and and why do you think it, it kind of works so well with horror well you know metal really like from the beginning embraced sort of a horror movie aesthetic i mean Black Sabbath is named after the Mario Bava movie. Um, so it's always been kind of hand in hand. And I feel like in the 80s, when you had the moral majority on the right and the satanic panic, a lot of metal bands really felt pushed into a corner and, I, and they sort of doubled down on that horrific element, right? They were like, oh, if you think our last album was horrible, wait until you hear the next one. You know, we're really gonna go for broke with that one. And and then, you know, it, it branched out into all the subgenres and stuff. But I, I just think it, it was right there from the beginning. You know, this idea that this was a, um, this was a, a musical form whose visual expression was horror iconography. You know, and that's just always been a part of it. I mean, it's, it's the same way that like, you know, heavy music, when you look at like Led Zeppelin and all those bands, you know, that come off from that, they, they embrace a real like, there's a real Tolkien kind of thing going on there. It's just baked into the DNA from the beginning. Right. So now changing gears to another book again, why did you decide to have an Ikea or an Ikea equivalent be haunted for horror store? Well, that was really a case of a haunted Ikea is funny. Um, and, and like, it's, it's something you want to read about a haunted Ikea. And, you know, there is, and it's, I, I made it Orsk because A, at the last minute, the publisher had a real like panic attack about getting sued. But even before then, I wanted to make it not Ikea because I wanted to really explore the idea of work being a kind of punishment, you know, like retail work being kind of horrifying and torturous. And there was that whole 19th century thing with penitentiaries where it was like this idea that work could redeem your soul. Work was virtuous and, and doing physical labor was good for your soul. And for these horrible criminals, it was the best thing they could do. But then they made these things like a treadmill. But instead of walking on a treadmill and it was connected to like millstones that ground grain or turning a crank that turned a machine, the crank was just in a box of gears that turn nothing. The treadmill was connected to nothing. And this idea of divorcing labor from actual productive work, and you just do this endless labor, it's, it's hard, it's, it's cruel, it's sadistic, it's soul crushing. But when I was, I interviewed a little over a dozen IKEA employees to, to write the book, and they all really genuinely like their job. Like IKEA is a really fair employer. They pay above minimum wage in a lot of cases. They 
everyone felt like for a retail job, they were really treated like a human being. And I didn't want to take the trust these people had given me to share details about their job and their relationship to it. And, and then say, and they work for Ikea, which is the dark Satan at the center of a retail hell. So I, I really wanted to make it somewhere that was like an Ikea knockoff already. Horror Store and My Best Friend's Exorcism have both been option for adaptation. So I guess, are you going to be involved in those projects at all? And uh, do you know like when we're going to be seeing those or anything like that? You tell me, man. Hollywood moves very slowly. And I'm as involved as you can be involved. Um but, you know, I'm the lowest guy on the totem pole. Like, I wrote the books. Like, if there's a meeting of everyone involved in Horror Store, I'll be the guy, I'll be, like, the least powerful person in that room, and I'll be asked to go get coffee. You know, like, I mean, not literally, but figuratively. Like, it's just, so I'm the last person to know. I mean, fingers crossed, but we'll see. This stuff moves so slowly. Well, they need to move faster. <laughs> I wish. You've uh, been working in uh, film writing, can you tell us a little bit about Mohawk and Satanic Panic? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I actually, um, I, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ted Gagan, who did this movie called We're Still Here, he was doing his second movie and like he had really wanted to make Mohawk, but the producers didn't and they wanted him to do something else. And I've written screenplays a ton and had things optioned or blobbing around and, um, you know, nothing ever paying that much or getting very far. But, you know, just... I don't know, maybe not my foot in the door, but like my foot was on the pavement that leads to the steps that lead to the walkway that led to the door. And so, um, and so I'd, I was actually working on a screenplay that would become Satanic Panic. And I said to Ted, you know, if I just made some changes, this might be the project that really works for you. And so he and I worked on it some, and then uh, he got this call. I think it was like January 22nd. And it was like, yeah, so we're going to have a crew shooting a movie in Saskatchewan. And so we want to make Mohawk off the back of that because they're already going to be there and they're going to be fully like doing ready to do period stuff and um, ready to rock and roll. And so Ted turned to me, he's like, do you know anything about the War of 1812, which is when it's set? He only had like a, a three paragraph pitch for the movie. And I was like, well, yes, I happen to be a big buff for the War of 1812 because I love the War of 1812 because it's the stupidest war ever. And um, I've, I've wanted to do a War of 1812 project for a long time. And so that helped. And, the, and it really helped because we only had six weeks to go from that three-paragraph outline to a screenplay and a fully done script that was – and it was – that was January 20, I think it might have been the 22nd when we got the phone call, and they were rolling cameras in May, uh, end of May. So it was an insanely short pre-production process. And then when that was done, I still had Satanic Panic, and uh, I was using it as a writing sample, and, and it got picked up by the folks at Fango. Well, definitely looking forward to seeing that one as well. Me too. <laughs> it's it's wrapped and i'm curious to see the final version can can you give us any tidbit of what you're working on now yeah i mean what i'm working on now is a book i've wanted to write for a long time and it's sort of the the end of a era for me it's the last book on my contract with quirk and i'll, I'll probably still work with quirk but it's just the last of this chunk and uh, my editor at quirk has left and uh so there's a new editor there now so he was a big part of the process for all these and and um you know, it's and there's books I want to write moving forward that that are still horror, but they're very 
they're very different. Like the, you know, the only way to learn how to write books is by writing them. And so every time you write a book, you want to do something new and different. And so it'll always be my stuff, but I really want to, to do something radically different with the next book. And so this book's sort of the, the end of a chunk for me. And, and I don't want to say what it's about, except that, um, it's not a sequel to My Best Friend's Exorcism, but it's set in the same neighborhood, and it's set about five years later, and none of the same characters are in it, but it's the same kind of people. And because I really wanted to write a... After My Best Friend's Exorcism, a lot of people were, would come up to me and say, oh my God, Gretchen's parents were like the worst. And I was like, yeah, but you know, there's another version of this story where here's two parents and something's really wrong with their daughter and they're terrified and they don't know how to stop it and she's getting worse and worse and whenever her best friend comes around it gets really bad and they're they don't have the tools to cope with this and they don't know what to do and they're really trying hard to do their best but they're just out of their depth and so this is a book about parents basically um and and sort of what the, the, the things they do when we're kids that we're not aware of to keep us safe. And it's about vampires. That was one of my biggest critiques about My Best Friend's Exorcism is I felt that the parents were not 100% realistic. You know, all they, there was a lot of negativity coming from them. So if we can get, uh, you know, their side of the story, I think it will flush out my opinion of the book even more. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing with that is... Um, the book is told from Gretchen and Abby's point of view, and specifically Abby's. And so the parents are just these horror shows because that's how they seem to her, right? They're just terrible. And there was actually a little bit more with her parents and sort of her reconciling with them and really, you know, growing at the very end when it's sort of she's growing older, like really making peace with them and stuff. But for pacing reasons, it just came out. But yeah, no, I agree with you. And one of the funny things about writing this current book is one of the big criticisms I'm getting is the kids are so shitty and like awful. And I'm like, yes, because to a parent, your kids are shitty and awful. Like they love their kids. Parents love their kids, but they don't like them necessarily. Like, you know, a, a 14 year old is a horrible thing to have on your hands they're ungrateful they're selfish they're um, disrespectful they don't appreciate anything you do for them um, they do stupid things all they're basically brain damaged lunatics in your house so it's 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 hard to find the the balancing ground right yeah and that makes perfect sense yeah that was it was funny one of the reasons i in best friends exorcism that they're in 10th grade is i remember 10th grade being a particularly hard year and when I was going through old yearbooks from high school, it's like middle school, elementary, like middle school and then high school, like, you know, people write in the year, oh, you know, have a great summer. It was cool to sit next to you in algebra. You're a neat person. And then suddenly in 10th grade, like the inscriptions just exploded into these like half page long epics with all these inside jokes. And it's like suddenly in 10th grade, you develop a personality. And I talked to some of my high school teachers and they're like, oh, we never want to teach 10th grade. It's like suddenly every single kid just loses their mind and is insane. And so like, you know, there's just this. So you have a lot of fun waiting for you ahead. Especially since I'm going to be a high school English teacher soon. Oh my God, really? That's bonkers. It is what it is. No, I think it's amazing. Listen, I wouldn't have gotten through high school without my English teacher. Like, she really went to the mat for me more than once to keep me in school and, like, enrolled. And 
it was the only class that didn't make me completely and totally miserable. So you were going to be bailing out some some depressed, messed up, weird kids. Good for you. Sounds right up his alley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll be the real life horror uh, for the podcast. Exactly. All right, so I guess uh, to wrap things up, uh, is there anything that you want to shamelessly plug? Where can people find your work or uh, you online? Yeah, I mean, I, I keep everything at GradyHendrix.com. Like, everything I do, you can find my dumb social media platforms and all that crap there. And uh, no, I just, you know, I, I'm just really grateful people read this stuff. It's I sit in my stinky little office and write, and it's amazing to me that these, like, these people I make up go out and make friends and get in trouble and have adventures. Well, keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, we definitely appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Screen Kings. Stay spooky.